This episode of The Science of Survival is brought to you by Health IQ, a company that, for all the fun we've been having promoting it in the last few episodes, really is doing something interesting with life insurance. The basic concept is this. If you're someone who pays attention to their health, you're probably going to be less expensive to insure, and your rates should reflect that. So the team at Health IQ put together a quiz to help you demonstrate your knowledge. They're customizing something that's been one-size-fits-all for too long. The questions cover four categories, nutrition, exercise, medical knowledge, and integrative, which is like how to combine the different elements into a healthy lifestyle. The thing I like about it is that it's knowledge-based, not fitness-based. No one's recording your time in the shuttle run. So if you like the idea of being rewarded for healthy living, go to the website and see if you qualify. You'll find it at healthiq.com outside. That's healthiq.com outside. This episode is also brought to you by Stay Roasted. This is Robbie, by the way, Outside's other audio producer. Since I'm the one with the five-month-old, I get to do the coffee advertisement. I'll be right there, bud. Stay Roasted is a subscription service that delivers 100% specialty-grade coffee beans straight to your door. You choose the beans, the amount, and how often you need a resupply, and they handle the rest. Because the one thing you don't want to find at 4.30 in the morning is that you're out of coffee. There are dozens of craft roasters to choose from, and Stay Roasted plans start at only 60 cents per brewed cup, and there's no commitments. Try it for yourself. Visit stayroasted.com slash outside to get your first bag of coffee for free. You only pay shipping. That's stayroasted.com slash outside. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the science of survival. Hello? Hey, Stacey, this is Peter. Can you hear me now? Hey, Peter. Yeah, I can hear you much better now. Okay, great. We're just Pretty much the first thing that Dan Fattrell, Isaac Stoner, and I did after coming back to La Paz after five days on Mount Illimani was call Stacy Greer. On an internet phone with a tenuous connection. Hey, Isaac. Hey, Dan. How are you guys? Good. Good. Turns out altitude is no joke. Stacy is the daughter of 980's flight engineer, Mark Bird, who was killed in the crash when she was just three years old. In the weeks before setting out for Bolivia, her conversations with Dan had changed the trip, made it more than a simple treasure hunt. We, we estimated that you know, there was about one plane part per every square meter. I mean, there's literally oh plane parts just everywhere. and it was. Since we don't normally do serialized episodes, I should say now that if it feels like you're coming into a story already in progress, you should go back and listen to parts one and two, which give a more thorough outline of why we're in Bolivia, what we're looking for, and why what we found is important. We found, you know, here's an interesting thing. We found um, two jackets. One of them had four stripes, which would have been the pilot's jacket. Uh, uh, oh, my God. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah, so that would have been Larry Campbell. We found another one with three stripes, which God. would have been Ken Rhodes. Um, Most importantly for our story today, Dan found a roll of magnetic tape, kind of like what would have been used inside a flight recorder. Maybe. We weren't sure. And Stacy was our first call because of all the people we'd talked to before the trip, 
It seemed like she still had the most invested in solving the mysteries surrounding the crash. Why hadn't anyone found the flight recorders? Or a single body from the plane? It seemed like answering these questions would help fill in the story of why she'd lost her dad. Before we went to Bolivia, it seemed like the conversation around 980 was dominated by the idea that the National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB, had purposely botched the investigation as part of a government cover-up, either because the CIA was smuggling drugs into the U.S., or because the plane was brought down by a bomb. The bomb theory would explain why no one found any bodies, because depressurization would have sucked everyone out of the cabin before it hit the mountain. The drugs would explain what was described as a half-hearted effort to get to the crash site. And for lack of better options, Stacy subscribed to some of these ideas. But now, we had new information. Some of it we had expected to find. Uh, we did find some human remains, but uh, really all we found were, were bone fragments. Some of it, like the orange piece of metal that we found on the last day, we could hardly believe. Yeah, so the, the piece we found on the third day, Dan and I, uh, the entire time we were up there, were debating what was this orange metal that had a little label on the wires uh, that said cockpit voice recorder. So, you Oh know, my gosh, are you serious? We, we know we found it, yep. But for all our discoveries, it didn't seem like Stacy was really changing her mind. But it was there, it was there, and they did not get it the first time they went. Yeah. Yeah. That is evidence against the NTSB right there. That is what we need to take these, to blame somebody and to take them to court. Today on the show, now that we've found bodies in the flight recorders, we're taking a look at what that means. What do we know and what do we not know? Why did it take 30 years for anyone to find a body? Why did the only person to make it to the crash site, Bernardo Garacci, refused to talk about what he saw up there? Why did it take nine months for the NTSB to send another team to investigate? What's on the magnetic tape that Dan found? And what brought down the plane in the first place? Let's start by reviewing the facts of the flight itself. Flight 980 was on its way from Paraguay to Miami and making a quick stopover in La Paz to pick up passengers and cargo. Instead, it crashed in a 21,000-foot Mount Illimani, no one knows what caused the crash, and the investigation was stymied by weather and altitude. In the aftermath, some facts emerged that were straight out of a spy novel. First, it came to light that the U.S. ambassador to Paraguay, Arthur Davis, was supposed to have been on board. But he changed his plans at the last minute. No one really knows why. His wife, Marion, was killed. Also suspicious was the fact that one of Paraguay's wealthiest families, the Matalans, they were on the plane, including Enrique Matalan, the richest man in Paraguay at the time. So this wasn't just a U.S. tragedy. This was front-page stuff in both Bolivia and Paraguay. In fact, when you start asking around about Flight 980 in Bolivia, the stories surrounding the crash are no less mysterious and conspiratorial, but they are different mysteries and different conspiracies. In Paraguay and Bolivia, the mystery of Flight 980 has nothing to do with drugs or a bomb, but rather a big bag of cash that Enrique Matalan supposedly carried on board the plane. In the South American version, Matalan brought $20 million on board in a duffel bag that hasn't ever been found. Now, 
No one that I talked to was able to give me any reason why he would have brought 20 million in cash. But that's the story. And I talked to people who found it credible enough that they've gone searching for it. In North America, we were more concerned with what happened to the flight recorders. And at the beginning of both stories, we have Bernardo Garacci, the only person to make it to the crash site before the plane was covered in snow, and who was curiously reticent with investigators from the Airline Pilots Association, or ALPA. All he would tell them after his climb was that he recovered, quote, nothing of value. No, I don't believe he brought anything down, and I have no explanation for that, because he wouldn't he wouldn't answer the Alpha people when they questioned him about it. Former Eastern Airlines pilot George Jen has a lot of questions for Garachi in his 2014 memoir, Final Destination Disaster. The book revived talk of conspiracy theories surrounding the crash, and in it, Jen asks, quote, Was he paid? If so, who paid him? What was his specific mission? What did he discover? Did he take pictures? Did he see or recover the recorders? Why didn't the NTSB demand answers to these important questions? Unquote. And actually, the pictures thing came up a lot. What, what do you think somebody who went there to investigate would take? What's the first thing he would take? A camera. A camera? No. He went without a camera. Huh. Without any recording device or anything. If you remember from part one, Eastern flight engineer Ray Valdez hired a team of climbers to go search the impact site two months after the crash. And he said Garachi's lack of documentation was part of what inspired him to send a team up there. Yeah, I thought that whole thing was strange. I, you know, why would you ever do something like that? So I decided, that's when I decided on the expedition and to record it well every step of the way. It seemed like everyone was suspicious. Bernardo Garachi was a puzzle within a mystery, wrapped in a layer of, why didn't he take a camera? It didn't help that a lot of people in the Bolivian climbing community describe Garachi as being unapproachable and a little bit hard to deal with. Like, he had a pretty big ego. In fact, when he got back down from the mountain, I figured the most likely explanation for Garachi's long-term silence was that he'd never actually made it to the crash site. He just said he did at the time. Maybe so he could get paid for the work. And then no one has ever followed up on it. Did you, did you try to talk to uh, Garachi for your book? No, I never did. I I had no way of getting in touch with him. No. Back in La Paz, after the search, I hired translator Bill Rabluski to reach out to Garachi and request an interview. But I didn't think we were going to get it. When Garachi said yes, I figured it would end when I brought up Flight 980. Instead, we talked for two and a half hours. Okay, and, and just to set the levels and get the audio correct, um, can you just tell me uh, where you're from and how you started climbing? Yo nací in Patacamaya. Bernardo Garachi was born in Patacamaya, Bolivia, but raised in a little town in Chile. He came to La Paz when he was 19, hoping to find work. Eventually, he was taken in by a climbing guide and went to Germany for more mountain safety and guide training. Then he came back to La Paz again, looking to make a name for himself. So he went around and gave his contact info to all sorts of organizations in La Paz, saying, if you ever need help in the mountains, I'm your man. One of those organizations was the U.S. Embassy. And when Flight 980 went down, Garachi got a call from U.S. Consul Royce Fichte. He doesn't remember exactly the dates, but it was very quick. Fichte had him rush to the airport, where the Americans had a helicopter waiting to take him up the mountain. 
He didn't take a camera, he says, because this was 1985 Bolivia, and not everyone had cameras just sitting around like today. He didn't have time to find one. But he got to base camp, and then Fichte stayed behind when Garachi and two helpers started climbing the next morning. No, no Aaron Opanistas, two no, Yeah, his two assistants, like, they weren't climbers. Okay. They made their way up, but on the climb, someone got on the radio and told him to stop. He was not to go any higher than a campsite at 18,000 feet, well below the summit and crash site. It took two hours of arguing to get permission to continue, and Garachi doesn't know who he was arguing with. And let's just take a second here to acknowledge that there are two ways to look at this moment. On the one hand, maybe someone on the radio didn't want him getting to the crash site and finding the flight recorders. On the other hand, Garachi himself describes the climbing as difficult and dangerous. He heard avalanches crashing above him. No one in charge of an investigation would order a climber into that environment. Garachi went because this was a chance to earn some notoriety as a mountaineer. It was about 11 a.m. the next morning when Garachi and his team got over the summit and down the other side of the impact site. Here, they were in the strange situation of being able to smell the plane, but not able to see it. At 19,000 feet, there isn't enough oxygen for even jet fuel to ignite, so there hadn't been a fireball in the crash. Eventually, they found the tail of the aircraft, where the embassy had told them the flight recorders would be. Garachi says he found papers from the cockpit, luggage, and a lot of crocodile and snake skins, but no flight recorders. Then I asked if they had found any bodies. He said, it. He said yeah, we, we, we looked and we didn't see, you know, there were, there were no dead bodies. There was certainly blood. There was. There, yeah, there was blood, but not a finger. We didn't even see a finger. Like, he said it wasn't like the plane crashes I was picturing, where there's a plane on the ground at the end. There was just nothing left. That kind of impact, that kind of explosion, the human body can't survive. So he said, like, like, like ground beef. <laughs> he said, like, carne molido. Hmm. It's just, just... Okay. They spent another night, and Garachi got word that someone was going to jump out of a helicopter on skis and bring them a resupply of food and dry clothes. And if you remember from part one, this was probably Bud Leopard. But it never came and they were forced to descend. At which point, things got even more treacherous. On the way back down, Garachi's whole team was caught in an avalanche. It was only because one of his group self-arrested that they were saved from being swept hundreds of feet into a crevasse. And then, when they got back down to their lower camp, they found footprints. Another group of climbers had followed them up the mountain, but not all the way. It was like they were being monitored. And when he got back down to base camp, Garachi's team was split up, taken to three different tents. Questioned, searched, and then strip searched. Then they were flown by helicopter to the La Paz airport, where they were questioned and searched again. One of his interrogators threatened him. Be careful telling anyone about this, he said. I'll ruin you. So that's why Garachi's role in all this has been so strange. He was scared. The official Bolivian crash report was written without his input, but if he had been willing to talk to them, they would have noted blood and other flesh at the crash site, and the mystery of the missing bodies would have never come up. You could still accuse Garachi of lying about all this, 
people still do, but his story rang true to me. He talked openly and at length about his time at the crash site. Some of the details he mentioned matched other accounts that he didn't know that I knew about. There's no reason to doubt his story. But Garachi says even his friends still sort of look at him suspiciously when the subject of the crash comes up. For a long time, no one believed that he hadn't found anything. Even today, he'll be out at the bar with other guides, and when it's his turn to buy around, the joke is that he's paying for it with Enrique Matalon's money. It's always bothered him. You could easily see that building into a reputation for being difficult. I talked to Garachi on the day that Dan and Isaac left to head back to the States, and the next day, I went home too, thinking that with the cockpit voice recorder in Dan and Isaac's stuffle bag, and Bernardo Garachi on my actual voice recorder, we were pretty close to putting this mystery to rest once and for all. Anyway, so, so stuff has been happening since we got back, and I just wanted to check in with you guys and just see, like, basically start from when we got back to now and just catch me up on, on like... Instead, things took a turn that we did not see coming. Yeah, so um, we got back, and, uh, and then we had a big black box party, and we had all our friends over to see these shrapnel pieces of metal. And about halfway through that, I got a call from a friend of mine who had been at the FAA for one of his internships uh, when he was going through law school. And he said, hey, you know, I've got these two guys you've got to reach out to. They'll know what to do with all this stuff. I've been following every blog post. As a lawyer as well, he's like, so you have the material in the U.S., out of Bolivia? Like, in, in the, you, you, how did you get these into the U.S.? I think what he said was, please tell me you don't have it in your house. What we didn't know in Bolivia is that international flights are governed by a United Nations treaty called the International Convention on Civil Aviation, or ICAO, pronounced ICAO. ICAO says that wherever a plane crashes, that country is in charge of the investigation. So moving evidence to a different country, even 31-year-old evidence, could be seen as interfering with that process. We had violated a UN treaty. Uh, so my friend said, okay, here's a guy to get in touch with, uh, which we did. We reached out to the managing director of the NTSB, who apparently uh, had their lab is supposed to be one of the only facilities in the country that can really do what we, we want to do. Uh, and his response was, you know, this is great. We need to get clearance from the State Department. <clears throat> this is an ongoing investigation in Bolivia. Uh, technically, you've interfered with a, a Bolivian, uh, not a crime scene, but a, a Bolivian investigation. And, and I think by interfered, they mean helped out yes. quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. So the NTSB would have to get approval from Bolivia before they could look at the magnetic tape. Which sounds like no big deal, except that relations between the U.S. and Bolivia are pretty frosty. So at this point, the you're saying that this, the holdup is with the Bolivians, right? So so here here's the deal: we we uh, have called the embassies, we've emailed, and we've sent uh, a certified letter, and in each of them we've said, "Hey, you know, we're the guys with the black box from Eastern 980. Please let the NTSB look at it." Uh, because the NTSB has told us they will not look at it until the Bolivians give them permission or themselves refuse to look at it. The root of the problem is that Bolivia is a major producer of coca leaves, which are a sacred medicine to the Aymara people and help with altitude problems. 
We chewed them through the whole trip. But coca leaves also contain the active ingredient in cocaine. So the U.S. has spent decades trying to suppress the cultivation of a crop that props up Bolivia's rural population. It's a rough situation, diplomatically, and it could be going better. In 2008, President Evo Morales accused both the U.S. ambassador and the Drug Enforcement Administration of plotting a coup against him and expelled them both from the country. And then, as if this story didn't have enough international intrigue, in 2013, Morales' plane was forced to land in Austria because of a rumor that Edward Snowden was on board. WikiLeaks later took responsibility for the misinformation, but Morales was so mad at the U.S. response that he threatened to close the U.S. Embassy in Bolivia. And when experts back home saw how much legal and diplomatic baggage we were carrying, everyone got skittish about helping us. I reached out to former and current crash investigators at Boeing and ALPA, who said they wouldn't touch the magnetic tape until its legal situation was sorted out. Then I asked a magnetic tape expert in Switzerland if he might be able to get any information from it. He said that not only was the NTSB the only place with the right equipment, but that we might only get one shot at reading the tape. The NTSB, meanwhile, often deals with foreign governments, looking for a reason to pick apart the NTSB's procedure. So the organization's effectiveness, perhaps its very existence, depends on its reputation for following the rules. And so their advice and his advice has been return the material to Bolivia um, and let them figure out what to do with it. Which in our minds is, you know, the final scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where the crate goes into that massive warehouse where it's left forever? That's, that's <laughs> what we're thinking that, that is if we do send stuff back to Bolivia. So we're, we don't want to do that. We're, we're trying to figure out what to do next. To put it succinctly, we were stuck. And when I called up George Jen to get his thoughts, this surprised him not at all. Nobody, it's like that, that crash is toxic. Nobody wants to go near it. So the, the questions that flow from that are why. The thesis statement of Jen's book is that the NTSB purposefully bungled the investigation into Flight 980, and then the whole airline was tanked to cover the paper trail. And after following up with him on the phone, I can say that finding bodies in the flight recorders changed some of the details of his argument, but not its core. To him, the NTSB was still dragging its heels. So let's, I mean, let's look at this from a, like sort of a different angle. If you, if you were in charge of the NTSB and to investigate this crash or to, you know, release new information or even look at the, the flight recorders, if that would be in contradiction of the ICAO, 30 years later, why would you put your, like, stick your neck out to do that, to make that happen? Because... Because there were Americans that were killed on that, in that crash. There were American servicemen who were on board that aircraft, I believe including one Marine who was a guard at the U.S. Embassy in uh, Paraguay. I mean, why not investigate it? Why not try to get some answers? I mean, you were turned down when you tried to send the, the information that you recovered, the, the possible flight data recorder and or voice recorder, they turned you down, told you to send it to the Bolivians who don't even have the capability to read them. The points he keeps coming back to are the fact that it took the NTSB 10 months to launch an investigation into the crash. And when it did go, it was a mess. It's tough to put together a scenario that makes any sense whatsoever. I mean, 
10 months. You wait 10 months, then you go, and yet you rush people after 10 months so that they become ill. Jim Baker almost died up there. There were so many, I mean, look, if you want to call them errors, I don't know, calculated blunders, what, what, what would be the popular or the correct description of them? You know, I, I can't answer that question. I wasn't there. I put that question to someone who was there. Al Arrington traveled to Bolivia with the NTSB and developed pulmonary edema the first night on the mountain. We heard from him in part one. But he said that there wasn't any pressure from the NTSB to rush the trip. I don't recall anyone saying, we really got to move on this, this is a big hurry, because everybody knew this is 10 months after the event, you know, what's two more days, more or less, or a week more or less is going to make a difference. But we felt pretty good. We weren't completely fooling ourselves, but, you know, we thought we were probably doing okay. When you start to look at the question of why did it take 10 months for the NTSB to send a team up there, the delay becomes a lot less mysterious when you consider the fact that 1985 is one of the deadliest years in the history of aviation. Worldwide, August 1985 is still the single deadliest month ever. You get the sense the NTSB was pretty busy. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't seem like it all seems fairly straightforward to me. Straightforward. It's the only crash in the history of the United States airline industry that's never been properly investigated in a timely manner. How could you say it's straightforward? It's anything but straightforward. Well, I mean, you have, to my, to my eye, a reasonable effort to get to the crash site after the initial crash. What, which, which, which trek are you talking about? The one 10 months later? I'm talking about uh, Bud Leopard and Garachi making it there. You do seem to have you know, essentially people trying to get there, uh, determining that it's going to take um, a, a fairly monumental risk to, to make it there and deciding not to go. It's not like to get up to a crash site at 20,000 feet that you have to just throw human bodies and resources and, and people at it um, in, in such a way that you're going to risk those people's safety. Um, well... Uh, Judith Kelly did it on her own. Ray Valdez sent people up there without a problem. Sure. Yet the National Transportation Safety Board couldn't do that. I went back through all my notes and interviews, trying to understand Jen's point of view. And the best I can figure is that he's coming at this from a pilot's perspective. And I'm looking at it more like a climber. To a pilot, investigating a plane crash isn't about the crash itself so much as the ripple outward. The safeguarding of everyone else that might one day step on a similar plane or fly through that airspace. Nothing is safe until the cause of the crash is determined. And pilots are used to seeing huge resources go towards investigations. More than $100 million has been spent searching for Malaysian Airlines Flight 370. The NTSB expedition had $600 for expenses. Climbers, on the other hand, spend a lot of time thinking about risk assessment and how not to become fixated on a goal at the expense of their safety. There's an ethos of turning around when necessary, and the idea that an expedition has to be successful, no matter what, well, that plays really well in Hollywood, but it gets you kicked off of most actual summit attempts. And the thing that became clear after our time in Bolivia is that once the NTSB went up in October and came back down, the wreckage was basically gone, covered in snow that would compress and compact and become glacial ice. I asked a couple of guides and various climbers if anyone has ever been tempted to go up there, look around the impact site, 
They kind of cocked their heads like I didn't get it. The wreckage has been up there 30 years, but the only time a team would have been able to find anything without, I don't know, dynamite or heavy machinery would have been in 1985, before it was frozen. And apparently, 2016, after it melted. When he talks about his book, Jen says that he's just trying to bring a dose of skepticism to the conversation, which he does. But once the mysterious missing bodies have been found, and there's no question of someone having stolen the flight recorders, the story of the crash starts to sort of reassemble itself into a more plausible narrative. In large part, this was thanks to former Eastern pilot Captain Robert Furman, who sent me a copy of the NTSB's accident report. He'd been requesting it for years, but it only showed up around the same time that we left for Bolivia. The report is several hundred pages long. It comes in a binder, maybe three inches thick. I'm told this is short by NTSB standards, but it looks at every factor that could possibly contribute to a crash. They interviewed hotel staff in Paraguay to see if the cockpit crew was impaired or tired, but learned that they'd pretty much gone straight to bed the night before the flight, even skipping a New Year's party. The NTSB also combed through the plane's maintenance records to look for any problems or missed inspections. They also looked at the state of the weather, air traffic control, and navigation facilities. There's a saying that accidents come from a thousand tiny mistakes, adding up to one big disaster. And looking through the report, you can see the problems start to take shape. The descent into La Paz, for example, really was difficult flying. And Bolivia not only had no radar, but there were often language problems between flight crews and controllers on the ground. When Eastern began flying into South America, it issued a memo warning pilots to exercise, quote, a dose of pilot-type skepticism when in contact with the tower. But there wasn't much training on how to do this. Before landing in La Paz, a flight's captain was supposed to watch a video about the landing. That's it. According to the report, it's unclear whether pilot Larry Campbell ever did. Pilots coming into La Paz for the first time were also supposed to have someone who's flown the route before in the cockpit with them, a check pilot. But Flight 980 crashed on what would have been Campbell's second landing in La Paz. And records show that the check pilot had been issued a seat in first class. There's no way of knowing whether he was in the cockpit or not. Then there's the navigation systems. Flight 980 had two, the Omega and the Very High Frequency Omnidirectional Range. Or VOR. The Omega system is designed to be able to tell you where you are anywhere in the world, but it's known for imprecision and was originally designed for boats. The Alpa report I mentioned earlier does note that the Omega system was steering the investigator's plane four miles off course, which would not have been enough to cause 980's crash. The VOR, meanwhile, is a system of transmitters on the ground, almost like following an electronic trail of breadcrumbs. But according to that same report, the signal leading into La Paz was erratic and weak. In fact, when the NTSB looked into it after the crash, they found that the La Paz VOR facility had no record of any maintenance ever being done. Maybe none of this would have mattered if there wasn't also a storm southeast of the airport, spitting lightning and dumping snow in their path. Maybe a more experienced crew would have gone south around that storm, instead of north, towards the mountain. The questions we're left with now are questions of whether or not the cockpit crew knew that they were off course, or whether the impact took them completely by surprise. 
Were they frantically trying to figure out their position in his weather beat at the plane? Or was Mark Bird telling a story about his three-year-old daughter, Stacy? I mean, where where do you land on that? Are you um, is there a is there a theory that you're fond of as to what happened? Uh, well, the uh, three pilots had never flown South America before. I think they just uh, didn't figure out their position correctly. Well, obviously they did not. The chances of the NTSB getting permission to look at the magnetic tape at the moment looks medium. Just a few days ago, I got a call to say that the Bolivian embassy had acknowledged the existence of the flight recorders and tape, and that wheels in Washington are moving, slowly. We'll keep you updated. The chance that there is information on that tape that helps determine the cause of the crash, however, well, the chances of that are really, really low. We'll probably never know for certain what brought down the plane. But maybe now that doesn't matter quite as much as it used to. In July, Stacy Greer was in Boston for a week of classes and met up with Dan to talk about the expedition. I asked Dan to record the conversation uh, on his so, phone. Got back full stuff here. Uh, so all this stuff is for you. Okay. Um, you asked for pieces of the plane. Right. So, uh, so this stuff was all over the mountain. Okay. That's, yeah. This was a very not interesting piece. There were pieces like this just all over the mountain. Yeah. And I but I, but I thought like you probably want. You yeah. Know, like that's, this, yeah. I don't know. It's not interesting to anybody, but like I look at this and I'm like, wow. Like this is. I mean, this is my dad right here. This is the closest thing I have to the last time I saw him. You know. Yeah. So it, I mean. Yeah. They talked through the whole trip, and then when her young kids called at bedtime, she had them talk to Dan. Hey, I love you. Hey, do you guys want to meet somebody special? I'm, t I'm down here in the um, restaurant talking to Dan, and he's the guy that climbed the mountain to find your grandpa's plane. Do you want to meet him? Is that okay with you? Hello. Then she and Dan called her mom, Mark Bird's widow, and she cut straight to it. Hello? Hi, can you, can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. It's hard to hear, but her first question is, do you have any idea what happened? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, we got... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, we have lots of ideas. Uh, the only thing is... Uh, we're no better than anybody else about <laughs> picking which one we think is the right one. Um, you know, the uh, you know one of the things we're looking for was um, you know a anything that looked different from a plane just crashing into the side of a mountain. Uh, and and we didn't see anything that would tell us that something other than that happened. You know, it looked like a plane just ran into the side of the mountain. When I first talked to Stacy before the trip, she felt like as her dad's firstborn, it was her responsibility to figure out what had happened to him. When I talked to her again, she said it was enough just that people were talking about him at all. Dan and Isaac heard something similar from a lot of the other families that reached out. The family members, I, I, I kind of carried some worry that they were going to, um, 
you know, be irritated with us or, or be unhappy with something that we did. And, and so I, I worried about that throughout. And, uh, you know, all, I kind of referenced it earlier, all the family members that reached out to us um, expressed nothing but, but gratitude uh, in terms of, you know, thanking us for going up there, for having an interest. You know, Stacy told me last week, she said, hey, you know, nobody's been interested in this at all. And you're just a couple guys, but you know, it's still meaningful that, that it was, you know, it was, it was important enough for you to, to take effort out of your life and do this. And that, that's a common thread that I, I'm, I feel a little bit of relief over. I don't know about you, Isaac. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'd actually, I'd had a strange phone call from, uh, Larry Campbell, one of the pilots, ex-girlfriends. And all she wanted was to tell me that he's an amazing guy and it definitely wasn't his fault because he was an absolute perfectionist. And also she thought that it was it was a good thing that he was up there. You know, he loved to fly, and his final resting place was up there in the sky. And and I barely had to say anything to her. She she just wanted to talk. She wanted to communicate things to me. So that was a, a kind of unique moment there. Everyone processes tragedy differently. But for most, it seemed like there was a sensation of this plane crash existing outside of time. If you lose someone in an accident, you want answers. When they don't come, part of you gets stuck in that moment, waiting. The emotional equivalent of wreckage in a glacier. Now that we're back from Bolivia, waiting on news about the tape, it's like everyone is stuck in a different moment, frozen in a different way. The only comfort is that at least everyone's stuck in the same one. On our way up the mountain toward the debris field, the very first sign of the crash that we came across was a gravestone for one of the passengers, Maria Celia Facetti Fernandez. We didn't know who she was at the time. It was only by the date on the plaque that we figured out that she had died in the crash. But after we got back, we got an email from her best friend from high school and learned that they had both just graduated when the plane went down. They were 18 years old when the plane crashed. Now her friend is 49. We walked past Maria's grave on the way to go find something. And we found it, and now everything is different. But nothing has really changed. And after the friend heard what we'd done, she cried again, like no time had passed. This episode of The Science of Survival was produced by me, Peter Frickwright, with music by Robbie Carver. This is the end of our series on Flight 980, though we'll publish an update if we make any progress with the magnetic tape. Thanks to Ellie Hurdy, Bill Rabluski, Jonathan Pfeffer, Stacy Greer, Alex Ward, John Kalish, and Captain Robert Furman for extra help on the episode. Jonah Ogles edited the print version of the story and named it Cliffhanger. But it was only in the last week, while producing this episode, that we realized that both this story and the Sylvester Stallone movie, Cliffhanger, feature a suitcase full of money lost high in the mountains after a plane crash. I hear it plays a more central role in the movie. 
Next week, we're taking a one-episode break from survival to talk politics. Now that we're past the election, there are a lot of open questions about what the next presidency will mean for public lands, the EPA, and climate change legislation. So we'll be talking with outgoing Secretary of the Interior, Sally Jewell. She's an environmental advocate who worked in the oil industry and was the CEO of REI before Obama asked her to watch over 20% of the land in the U.S. If anyone can tell us what the future looks like, it's her. Or if you're looking for more investigations, check out Reveal, another show from PRX and the Center for Investigative Reporting. Reveal's team is constantly digging to expose problems that most people know nothing about. They spend weeks, sometimes months or years, getting to the bottom of a story. Along the way, they come across both good guys and bad guys, but by the end, they've revealed what's going on and who's to blame. Check it out. You can find Reveal on your local public radio station or anywhere you download podcasts. This season of The Science of Survival is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance in international aviation treaties. More at sloan.org. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. It helps them to think that they can do it themselves. Even even Stacy, you know, she said um, she's working on plans to go there next uh, next May. And our blog has turned into like a how-to guide, right? How to how to get to the crash site for yeah. dummies. <laughs> yeah, and and so <laughs> and. And that's us. Yeah. You, the original dummies. And, uh, we are we are the dummies. <laughs> yeah, we, we we did that. Uh, crash test dummies. Crash site dummies. Crash site dummies. <laughs> but she. Um, oh man. See oh, that? Man. Yeah. Oh, man. It's that's, like a band name. That's too much. <laughs> but uh, but but now Stacy believes that she can do it, and, and she's not the only one.